series back earlier this year on the church covenant, what it was, and it actually taught through the nine points that are listed in this, this document. And after months of discussion and, and refining and listening to feedback from folks in the church, uh, we have drafted what we believe to be a final version. I don't claim that it's free from any uh, problems, <clears throat> but we believe this is, this is about as final as it's going to get. There's nine points that we have chosen to make up a church covenant that does not exhaust all important points that are biblical for us to consider, but for the sake of, of creating something that had some level of conciseness to it and would give us a target to aim at, this is, this is where we are. <clears throat> there would be more points that, that would be favorites for folks. And many of them are woven into these nine points. So there's much about the Christian life and its purpose and our call that are woven in here in some form or fashion. We believe the statements that are in here are simply compilations of truths from Scripture. We're not, we're not seeking to be original. We're not trying to write something that reflects us as much as we're trying to just capture numerous Scriptures that teach on these issues and, and put them into a paragraph, a concise statement that we can get our hearts and our minds around and come into agreement as a church as to what we believe and how we're going to walk out our faith together in the life that we've been given to walk together. Does everybody have a document at this point? Please, if you have, if you have one of those wrong ones, would you fold it up, do something nasty to it so it doesn't get mixed in? It looks just like these. It's just missing two very important paragraphs, and there is no explanation as to how that happened <laughs> that we are aware of. Um, well, what I want to do today, I've titled this message, Signing the Church Covenant. And we're not actually going to sign it today. What we're going to do today is set before us the importance of considering what it says and examining our lives to consider our own desire to sign such a thing. But you know, it's interesting as we talk about signing a document like this. Um, just a couple of weeks ago or a week and a half ago, we celebrated the 4th of July, the day that we recognize uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And you know, as you reflect on that document, probably the most famous document that was signed, you, know, you come out of that with the statements of, you know, put your John Hancock right here. You know, it comes from that historic moment when 56 men chose to write their names down on a group of ideas and principles that they believed in. And they were willing to literally put their lives on the line by putting their names on that document. Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the older signers, said, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. Their lives were on the line. They were, and you, and you go back to the drama of that moment that we don't capture by reading a document that these guys thought through the implications, principles that they strongly believed in. But when you put your name on that thing, for them, it meant England would take notice of you as an individual and you were committing high treason. 
And your life now was in jeopardy. And who knew how this was going to unfold? You know, the respect of the world was toward the power of this empire that was run by England. And to rebel against it, they had known and had watched over and over and over again individuals that would fall to the triumph of the, the British armies around the world. So they knew they were putting their lives on the line. But they did that for something that they believed in. And I remember a few years ago there was a movie um, called The Patriot that really communicated something to me about the seriousness of how these people live their lives. It captures a story of a man who lived in, Colon- in, the, in the colonies. He was a farmer. He had, I don't know, half a dozen kids. And he was trying to find a peaceful way to be a part of what was going on in the colonies and the, and the breaking away from the, the British rule. But he came to a point in his life where, where his older son had so believed in the cause, his older son who was on the verge of seeking to be engaged and married to this young woman, but he believed in a cause and he put his own life in jeopardy by enlisting and seeking to be a part of the army. And eventually his father does the same thing. And and when you look at the reality of that, you can watch it, but when you think about the reality that these people... These young people, many of them, with one life to live, they left wives and children and a way of life and dreams and future promises and put their lives on the line. And when you watch the way in which they fought wars back then, you ever watch the way in which they fought wars back then? You wonder, what on earth were these people thinking? The British would dress in loud red coats and march in lines right toward gunfire with people playing drums. I mean, what were they thinking? And of course, and the other guys did the same thing. You know, it's kind of like march and, and I guess just shoot, 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 last guy standing wins. So you were pretty well assured you were going to die. But they were willing to die for something that they believed in. And they put their names down. Because they believed in this. And I want to ask us, what do you believe in so strongly that you'd be willing to lose everything in order to see it advanced? You you and I are living in the good of of a country that was formed out of the blood of individuals that was spilt those years ago, who never got to see what they purchased with their lives. They never got to see it. We're living in it. Our children will live in it. But they never got to see it. What, what do you believe in so strongly that you are willing to go way beyond mere inconvenience? You are willing to put your life on the line and for it to be altered, for you to suffer loss, for it to cost you your comfort, your way of life, your goals, your dreams, what you've wanted to be since you were a kid all your life. What do you believe in? I want to say this. I hope you are holding in your hand such beliefs. I hope you believe in the purpose of the church in that kind of a way. 
as much as we shoot off fireworks on July 4th and we celebrate patriotism, and I'm, I'm glad for the country that I'm a part of, wouldn't be, want to be a part of any other country in the world. But what we celebrate there pales beyond insignificance by comparing it to the church. If you study history, empires come and go. Countries come and go. Ideologies that people live by are temporary at best. The church is an eternal gathering with eternal influence and eternal significance. What you and I do by being a part of the church far outweighs what anybody has ever done, what any war that has ever been fought. The war that is being fought in the heavenlies is the eternal war. The war that the church is part of in claiming ground and advancing the kingdom in the face of spiritual opposition that you and I put on the armor of God, the uniform of the spirit and go to battle in every day. That has eternal consequences to it. What you and I are a part of in being a part of the church and this gets lost. It gets lost in our hobby mentality in this in this country that we have treated the church like it's a hobby. The church is an army. The church is advancing the kingdom of God. And I hope what what is in your hands in this document are things that you're willing to suffer some loss over. You're willing to be inconvenienced. You're willing to part with comforts. You're willing for this to cost you something. People have died over principles. Well, these are eternal truths. These aren't just personal principles. These are eternal truths. Being committed to the authority of Scripture. Commitment to the doctrine of salvation. Now, I'm not going to read through the document today. I'm just hitting, hitting a couple of headlines there. Committed to the economy of God in prayer. Committed to fellowship. So the way we live our lives has a meaningful impact on this world. These are things worth dying for. These are things that... I want to be known by. At the end of my life, I hope, I hope somebody will read these things and will say, that's what, that's what he was about. I can look at the bottom of this and I can find Keith Collins and his, his date in which he signed this. Because for him, this was a, a holy, historic moment where we stop and we think, what do I stand for in my life? What do I believe in in my life? I hope these things reflect who we are as a church and as individuals. And that, that we are, we're not just willing to go along with some church program thing about signing some form of membership. But we're making a statement. We're declaring something. The shot heard around the world is what you and I stand for in the spirit. And we've committed our lives to. You know, it's interesting as I, I look at the idea of signing Something like this. We are very familiar with in our lives, all of us, we, we take a variety of oaths through our life. A variety of places where we stand and we say, this is my commitment. When you sign a check, you write a check to somebody, you're committing that there's actually funds covering that. You're committing your word. You commit who you are when you sign something. When you walk back through oaths, I put in your outline, when you become a U.S. citizen, you may not realize this, but you take a vow. Now, if you were born here as a citizen, you never had to walk through this process. 
But if you come from somewhere else, you are required to take a vow in order to be a citizen in this country. Look at the words that they have to say. This is the actual oath of U.S. citizenship. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of which, of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen. That I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. That I will perform non-combat service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law. That I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law. And that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me, God. That's a pretty serious commitment, isn't it? Look at what you're saying when you become a U.S. citizen. There's elements of this oath that, that really, they're reflected all over the place. Anytime you find an oath, you find those kinds of components in them. When you got married, when you got married and you had a ceremony, and people were gathered as witnesses, and they watched you get married, and they watched you say things to each other, and you proclaimed your oath to one another, it had elements that sounded a lot like that. It had elements of forsaking all others. Remember, there's fidelity in a marriage oath. You make a commitment that I commit to you and I forsake all others in my commitment to you. You make promises. You make promises to love and to cherish and to be something toward that person. You give conditions upon which that's going to be occurring for better or for worse in sickness and in health until death do us part. You stand in front of all those gathered, and they stand as witnesses, and at the end of that ceremony, you sign a document stating what your intentions are toward that other person. Now, can I, can I say this? What you do in being a U.S. citizen is not as important as what you do in being a member of the church. Your individual marriage is not as important as the church. There's a bunch of people in the body of Christ need to hear that. We've got some, some flipped over teaching going on these days that have put the family on top of the church. I challenge you, read the New Testament and find the family on top of the church. You won't find it. You'll find the church everywhere. You'll find families in the church. And we've flipped that over and got it upside down. I think when it comes to joining the church, we are in desperate need of some real clarity on what does that mean? What does it mean to become part of the church? We talked last week, in the last couple of weeks, we live in this postmodern world where everything that's solid has been heated up and turned into these gaseous, mysterious ideas. There's this sweeping move of pluralism and ecumenism and whatever idea fits you, that's the one that you need to go with. We talked about the emerging church last week, that within evangelicalism are coming postmodern ideas. Solid biblical doctrines are being pushed aside. They're, they're, the screws are being undone. And convictions that should be strong and clear about things that are in this document, the authority of Scripture, the doctrine of salvation, those things are becoming less and less certain in the church world. 
We are living in a time that desperately needs clarity and commitment on behalf of anybody who will be a part of the body of Christ. When one says, I am a Christian, what does that mean in our society today? What does that really mean? You throw that thing out there and you get all kinds of answers. Well, read with me some of the analysis of those who pay attention to church demographics and activities. David Kinneman, a pollster, says most Americans do not have strong and clear beliefs, largely because they do not possess a coherent biblical worldview. Millions of Americans say they are personally committed to Jesus Christ, but they believe he sinned while on earth. I mean, you understand that is a huge problem. You're believing in a Savior who can't save you. This is no small thing. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. But do you believe Christ sinned while I was on earth? Uh, yeah. Well, you might as well believe in the oak tree outside. He can't save you. Why on earth would you believe in him then? Many believers claim to trust what the Bible teaches, but they reject the notion of a real spiritual adversary, or they feel that faith-sharing activities are optional. Millions feel personally committed to God, but they are renegotiating the definition of that deity. We have so many definitions for God today, don't we? And the one-size-fits-all mentality. You know, the Muslims worship the same guy as the Christians, and, and the Buddhists get along with all those folks as well. Um, that's uh, very uninformed. In fact, one reason why beliefs fluctuate is that most Americans hold few convictions about their faith. Most Americans have one foot in the biblical camp and one foot outside it. They say they are committed, but to what? They are spiritually active, but to what end? The spiritual profile of American Christianity is not unlike a lukewarm church that the Bible warns about. George Barna says the notion of personal holiness has slipped out of the consciousness of the vast majority of Christians. While just 21% of adults consider themselves to be holy, by their own admission, large numbers have no idea what holiness means. And only 35% believe that God expects people to become holy. He goes on and says American Christians are not as devoted to their faith as they like to believe. They have positive feelings about the importance of faith, but their faith is rarely the focal point of their life or a critical factor in their decision-making. That's a terrible indictment. The fact that few people take the time to evaluate their spiritual journey or to develop benchmarks or indicators of their spiritual health facilitates a distorted view of the prominence and purity of faith in their life. Now notice this prediction about the future here. He said, when asked what he saw on the horizon regarding Americans' faith, Barna listed three general patterns he expects to gain prominence in the coming years. I'm just going to put one in front of you. Diversity is a pattern he expects to gain momentum. There will be new forms of spiritual leadership, different expressions of faith, and greater variety in when and where people meet together to be communities of faith. Ecumenism will expand as the emerging generations pay less attention to doctrine and more attention to relationships and experiences, Barna predicted that there will be a broader network of micro-faith communities built around lifestyle affinities, such as gay communities of faith, 
marketplace professionals who gather for faith experience, and so forth. We are living in a day that needs a clear definition for what does it mean to be a Christian. What does a Christian stand for? What does a Christian believe? How does a Christian live? Inside the church, evangelical churches, these things are coming unbolted. And there's such a variety now that there's, it's, it's almost as though the, the, the red, green, and blue, whatever those things are that make your TV kind of come in focus, they're, they're all out of line. It's probably an old thing. They don't do that anymore, do they? I mean, we're in the digital age. I don't know if anybody even knows what those three things are for. But when you bring together, I mean, you look around in this room. You bring together people. You are bringing together a huge variety of folks. Do you know how many different perspectives are here? How many different ideas? How many different affinities? What we like, what we don't like? I mean, if you were just to look at the different religious backgrounds that are here this morning, this is just, this is just one building of people. But here, you know, here in New Orleans, predominantly what you have is a, a Catholic gumbo here. I use the word Catholic gumbo because if you grew up here in New Orleans and you grew up Catholic, you realize amongst conversing Catholics, you got a lot of different ideas about what it is to be a Christian, to walk out your faith. Right? The more modern, younger Catholic today in the city of New Orleans probably doesn't put a great deal of importance on church attendance. Certain activities takes odds with the church's authority, disagrees with decrees that have been made that are authoritative. But if you talk to your Aunt Zelda, you know, who's got blue hair and has been attending the church since the dawn of time, she goes to church at least every week, quite possibly every day. She has a grasp on morality that she imposes on you at Thanksgiving dinner. She wants to find out what you've been doing. Why are you doing that? She's nosy. She has, she has some convictions about how things ought to be. When you talk to a variety of Catholics about their views, about how to walk out their faith, or what exactly they believe, you find a variety of views. Well, here we all come together from that background. There's probably a few folks here who have drifted in. The rare few of you have drifted in from some dry county Baptist background where you, you know, your hairstyle said something about your level of spirituality. Whether you could roll it up and put it on top of your head or not. That, that declared how holy you really were. Uh, some of you may be coming from that background. But a lot of us are coming from the suburban cultural Christian background. You know, we've grown up in the suburbs. We have a way of life. That, that religion of suburban lifestyle, goals and dreams and how we handle money and how we do relationships, how we manage time. And we have sort of brought in some elements of religion into that. But we are, we are much more consumer and American oriented than we are biblical in our thinking, in our practice. So you, you bring all of us together and you put us in this room. You add to that different cultural backgrounds. You know, throughout the, the world, people think differently. Even here, we think differently because we come from different cultural backgrounds. We've grown up speaking different languages in parts of the world. People think about life differently. Uh, I saw an article the other day about a, a man who was doing ministry down in South America, and he talked about 
having to confront the machismo mentality of men in South America, in the church, and how these men treated their women, how they treated their wives, and the stories that were being heard. The culture that was there was just men that are down on women, men that neglect women, men that put women in their place, women that don't nurture and care for women, men who were acting very unbiblically. But yet, that was their culture. That's how they lived. And then as I was reading that article, I remember a number of years ago, Peter and I had gone down to Mexico to do a, a pastor's conference. You remember that, that session? Um, and in one of the sessions, actually, that Peter had done, he talked to the men about how they treat their wives. And this was not, it's not Peter bringing, hey, guys, pay attention, let me bring you the American version of how to treat your wife. No, this was this is a biblical version of how to treat your wife. You should have seen the faces of these men in the room. You should have seen the tears flowing after the meeting when they realized how they had been so ungodly in their convictions toward their wives and how they led them, how they neglected them, how they nurtured and cared for them. These were foreign ideas in many ways. And these were pastors who were leading communities who had come into the church with ideas that were so ingrained and soaked into them that they didn't even see it. And they brought it into the church. The church began to be affected because of the way it was being led. Now you add to that different personality backgrounds. Goodness, go around this room and look at the different personalities that are here. You got, you got passive people. You got aggressive people. You got you know, those left brain, right brain things happening. You got mercy motivated, and you got righteous thunderers. Right, this is the church. Now, how about we just throw the church out there and we say, okay, everybody just do church your way. Can you imagine what the church would be? It would be a blurry, confusing expression that lacked clarity and definition. But we're desperately in need of clarity of what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to walk as a member of the body of Christ? That needs clarity. It's always needed clarity. But in the world that we live in, I think we can see it glaringly, it needs clarity. In your outline it says the call to be a Christian is a commitment, and I'd say like these other oaths, that involves these three characteristics. One, it involves forsaking you're called to be a Christian. There's that separation dynamic. I like the language here that's in the, in the U.S. citizenship. I absolutely and entirely renounce. How many of y'all would be saying, I don't know if I can absolutely do that. I don't know if I can do that. Completely and entirely renounce all of my allegiance? Well, if you're going to be a person of integrity and you want to be a U.S. citizen, you have to do that. How many of us are sitting here as Christians going, well, I don't know. I mean, can I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance to wrong belief systems, to idols that I want to pursue in my life, to traditions, for goodness sake, that have been a part of my family for years? To be a part of something, biblically, it does involve forsaking separating from in order to embrace something else. It involves a death to self. When you find Jesus inviting people into the kingdom, 
It's not some slick brochure that's full of all kinds of promises and you don't need to make any adjustments on your part. Listen, don't confuse God saving us by grace, but yet calling us to holiness. They do go together. They are not at odds with one another. You know, to develop a theology that says, well, wait, wait, wait. If Jesus calls on me to respond in any way, well, then that can't be grace. Well, no, it just means you haven't studied grace very well. That's exactly what he did. You want to be my disciple? Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Where's the emphasis there? Take up your cross. You're going to need to die. If you want to follow me, if you want to embrace my will for your life, you're going to have to do away with your will for your life. You're going to have to do that. If you want to be a Christian, then your will has to die in order for you to embrace another one. If your will stays alive, then you will not. You will constantly, constantly be at odds with the will of God for your life. So to become a Christian, my willful, selfish way of doing things has to die. The, the Christian life begins at the cross. It doesn't end up there. We don't hopefully one day we're going to get to the cross based on all that we've done and we're moving and we're moving toward that. It begins with the cross. Me dying enables me now to receive a regenerated life and to walk in its power. And third, it involves a faithfulness to a calling. We're called to something. And the Bible over and over again calls us to live in a manner worthy of the calling. It calls us to examine whether we're faithful to the call or not. Every oath that we can take in our life, whether it's to a country or whether it's to our spouses, involves remaining faithful to that thing. It doesn't involve just at one point, I made it to an altar. I, I took a vow. I signed a document. It involves faithfulness to the end. That's what Christianity involves as well. Now, what's interesting in all these signings that we've mentioned, whether it's the signing of the Declaration, or whether it's thousands of immigrants who come to this country and who go through this class and at the end take a vow, or whether it's two becoming one, in all of them it's a variety of individuals who are coming together to do one thing. That's what facilitates and necessitates taking an oath. Because what you can't have is you can't have a thousand individuals coming together to do a thousand different things. What it facilitates and what it necessitates for this to ever occur is you're going to have to give up your way of doing it and embrace one way of doing it. Husband, wife, you can't have two ways of doing marriage. You have to come under one set of ideas. You can't have your ideas and her ideas. It won't work. You can't form a country. You can't have a football team, for goodness sake. Without everybody coming together and saying, we all agree we're going to read out of one playbook. We all agree that when the play is called, my job is to block down on the tackle. That's what I do. I don't get to say, hey, wait, you know, I was just thinking I'd, I'd knock the quarterback over, take the snap, and throw the ball in this play. I just, you know, I just kind of had an urge. You know, I thought that was okay. It doesn't work. So to do anything as a collection involves coming together, involves unity to do that. So I want to look for a moment at this call to unity. The word unity in your outline is defined there. It says the state or quality of being one. Singleness. The state or quality of being in accord. Harmony. 
Singleness or constancy of purpose or action, continuity. You know what's interesting as I look at that definition? This definition challenges the modern appeal that's in our society for unity. If you travel around, the, whether it's the Peace Corps or whether it's kind of these worldwide concerts or, or whatever it is, the, the world cries out for unity. Let's have unity. Let's have peace. Let's all come together, right? Remember some of these songs? I quoted John Lennon's song last week, I think. Imagine, I hope someday you will join us and the world will live as one. I remember the uh, We Are the World song back from the 80s. We are the world. Remember that? One of the lines in it says, There comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. Right? If, you're not, if you've been on drugs and you haven't heard any of those songs, everybody remembers the Coca-Cola theme song? You know, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. See, the world wants to all come together. The problem is it is missing one key ingredient. Come together under what? See, to have unity, you all have to subscribe to one agenda, one purpose. Everybody has to be about one thing. And the world has a problem being about one thing. You know, John Lennon's hope that we will all live as one misses the ingredient. John, what would be the one thing that we would all live underneath? What would be the one thing we would submit ourselves to? But see, because the problem with your lovely idea is that I have some of my own ideas. I mean, you'd like to live as one. What's your idea, John? What's a good life look like to you? Well, it looks like, I don't know, uh, I'm dressed like a flower child. I don't own anything, and I live under a bridge, and we all just do this when we pass by each other. Great. Appreciate that's your idea, John. I don't really like that idea. I don't want to live under a bridge. I want to own the bridge. And, and I would like to own you as well. I would, I would like for you to work for me. And if you don't work for me, I'll force you. I might even believe in slavery. Right? Welcome to real life, Mr. Lennon. You want us all to be one, but you haven't provided one thing for us to all come under the umbrella about. Well, welcome to Christianity. Christianity provides one thing. That it calls every human being to get underneath that one purpose. Now, when you do that, you actually can have unity. But you can't have it apart from that. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 records Jesus' great, it's known as his high priestly prayer for the church where he calls the church to be united under one thing. In our very pluralistic society, in our, our world where there is a kind of a cozy Jesus for everybody to kind of cozy up next to, kind of a Jesus that changes shape and form and definition depending on who you are. You can have your own version of him. He's the hero for all religions. You know, besides... The occult. Have you met a religion that doesn't like Jesus yet? Everybody wants to be nice to Jesus. The problem is, the only way that you can cozy up to Jesus and not be a Christian is if you ignore a lot of what he says. 
and only choose little bits and pieces of what he says. Otherwise, he's going to offend you. He's going to upset what you think about him. Well, if we just read through this prayer, hopefully I want you to put eyes on that the normal worldly person doesn't carry and listen to what Jesus says and listen to what he doesn't say and listen to the implications here. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and this is the, the last night that they're together with the disciples, and Jesus is going to pray, and these guys are going to observe and listen and, and hear the hearts that Jesus had. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, I'm not going to stop on all these points, but when you read statements like that, you do realize saying only has implications. Don't make the Bible something nicer than it really is. The only true God. Well, then are you saying that there's false gods and I might be believing in a false God? I'm just reading the Bible. It's saying that there are false gods because there's only one true God. So if your God isn't this God, then the other ones are false. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. If you skip down this prayer to verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In those few passages and a multitude of other ones in Scripture, you find the one thing. Jesus speaks several times in this prayer about what is to be glorified. Glorify the Father. Glorify me. I have made you known, which is what glorifying is. To glorify something is to let it be revealed for all that it is. When the Bible calls on the glory of God to be shown, that word glory in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word, chabad. And there's not a real good word for it in the English language. The the best word I've been able to come up with is is almost the word density. Can I take you back into your classes that you forgot when you were in high school? Chemistry, physics, those things. I know this is like memory regression, but it's repressing these things. But density was what something was made of. It provided the reason why if you were holding a, you know, two square inches of plastic in one hand and two square inches of lead in the other, why they felt so different. Because what made this one up, it was made up of something different. That's what Chabad is. 
It's what God's made of. It's, it's a revelation of Him. When you say, I want to glorify God, what you're saying is, is you want what God is made of to be seen. You want His character to be seen. That's why when Jesus says, I made known to them your name. What's in a name? Well, when you read the Old Testament, you find there's a lot in a name. There were many names that described elements of God. When, when Moses asked for God's glory to be revealed, remember in Exodus 33 and 34, God, show me your glory. And God hit him in the rock and passed by. God, if you will, just showed him elements of who he was. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness yet will not allow the unrighteous to go unpunished. See, this was an unfolding of what the character of God is like that Moses wanted to see. The one thing that Jesus was doing in coming, the one thing that we are all called to live under the umbrella of, is for the glory of God to be seen. That's the one thing. When man gets in line with that, we can all come together. And do one thing. Because our passion is no longer individual. It's no longer for my glory. Now, how do many of us realize quickly that the real problem with me wanting to let the glory of God be seen is that I'm, I'm competing with that because I want my own glory to be seen. I want you to appreciate me for who I am. I want you to notice me. I want to stand in the light. I want to be significant. I want to be accepted. I want you to find value and worth in me and somehow want to be married to me or want to be related to me or want to have a relationship with me or speak about me a certain way. And if you talk behind my back and you say something poor about me, why does that bother me so much? Because I, and I love my own glory. And I want you to love my glory as well. And now you and I are going to have a conflict over that. And when you have conflicts, you don't have peace. When you don't have peace, you can't have unity. But what if I love the glory of God? So much so that I'm really not all that interested in my own glory. See, now it doesn't matter as much whether you speak of me a certain way, treat me a certain way. See, now I'm really freed from you in a way. Because as long as your attention's on God, I don't, I don't notice significantly how little attention you're paying to me. I, I'm much more about how, how are you enjoying God. He's the radiant, wonderful, awesome one that we should be giving our attention to anyway. That's the one thing I'm living for anyway. So it changes the way we relate. It changes issues of conflict. But this is the one thing in Scripture that we're called, and it brings about the very basis for unity. Unity has to have a basis. You can't throw unity out there and say, let's all be united. On what basis? Well, this is the basis. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things, all things, people were created through him and for him. Property was created through him and for him. Pleasures, every pleasure you and I can experience in this world was created through him and for him. Relationships, every relationship you and I can have on this earth was created through him and for him. Everything finds its meaning when it associates itself with the glory of God. Our relationships are intended to display the glory of God in how we walk them out. Isaiah 43, 21. The people whom I formed for myself, 
that they might declare my praise. Declaring God's praises, revealing his glory, showing forth the worth of God, what God is like. And we have been prepared to be those people. That's why we exist. 1 Peter 2.9, a very familiar verse to us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now here's the purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we are a people. Now, that's why there is money in our lives, in order to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's why there is marriage in our lives, in order to proclaim something about God. That's why there is sex in our lives, in order to proclaim something about the glory of God. That's why there is purity in our lives. The way we walk it out says something about the glory of God. That's why it matters how we live. That's why we have taste buds. So that you can enjoy what you're eating as a means of showing something about the glory of God. That's why we have self-control. So that we can put limits on that which we're enjoying. So that we don't become large in our enjoyment. See, these things, all of them, every, I mean, you can go through every minute detail of your life. It was created by him. It was created for him. It was intended to show forth the praiseworthiness of God. And you can see there's a huge importance placed on how we handle the things given to us in our lives. God creates marriage and he gives it in the lap of man and he says this thing uniquely will show forth my glory. God creates singleness. This thing will will show forth my glory. God creates self-control. This thing will show forth my glory. Now when it gets into my life, the way I handle it will determine whether it shows forth the glory of God or whether it displays the sinful glory of man. The answer to solving all these, whether it's relationship conflicts, whether it's marriage conflicts, whether it's war, whether it's poverty, how do you solve all those problems? By having people, when they face that moment, when they face that issue, whether it's whether to launch this rocket at you or not, whether it's to divorce you or stay with you, or whether it's to part with my money to feed somebody who doesn't have something. Every one of those moments, the individual faces, what glory am I interested in? Before I push this button, does this show forth the glory of God? Before I leave you, never to return to this relationship, does my action show forth the glory of God? That needs to be the guiding principle. If you want to have unity, this is the only way to have unity. Let's keep reading Jesus' prayer here. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
This is a very interesting concept. If you ever read the Bible or pondered Jesus as being selective in his actions, does that fit the modern Jesus on the horizon of our culture? That Jesus says, I am praying for these. I am not praying for those. Wait, wait, Jesus, you're going to end up in court over this. You can't do that. Have you heard of equal opportunity laws? You have to pray for everybody. If you do for one, you have to do for another. So this is the prerogative of God. He can choose whatever he chooses to do. And because he's right and perfect, whatever he does choose to do is right and perfect. I am praying for these. I am not praying for those. How do you know that, that, that God's not interested in Mr. Lennon's song ever being fulfilled? Apart from him. How many, how many of you have contemplated this, this version of God? This is the real nice God. God doesn't want world unity. You read the Bible? You find out what happens when people get a little bit too unified in the Bible? Dips them in a lot of water? You know? Get real unified in sin, and God just comes and just destroys the whole earth. Come together and build a tower that will reach to the heavens. And what does God do to them? He confuses them and separates them and spreads them out. See, anytime man wants to get unified, apart from being unified under the umbrella of the glory of God, God opposes it. Because it is sinful. Now listen, I don't know, you know, the Tower of Babel. I don't really know what's going on there. We don't, we're not told a whole lot. We, we, we tend to think that because, because these guys were put off by God and God changed their relationship so drastically, they must have just been having keg party after keg party after abusing women and just living this wild life at the foot of this leaning tower pizza looking thing. And so God came in and stepped in and busted that up. See, we could never imagine that that, I don't know, maybe, maybe that tower that was being built was some kind of a humanitarian effort that was seeking to bring healing to all the all the countries that were gathered nearby and people could come and find a cure for AIDS and whatever other needs of humanity. Wouldn't that have been a great thing? Well, if all things were created for him and by him, when man takes all these things that are created and pulls them away from God and says, thanks, but we don't need you. We will do good without you. Is that still a good thing? In the eyes of the Creator, that unity is no longer a good thing because it is not united under the purpose for which you and I have been created, which those few verses declare that. We're declare we're here to declare the glory of God, not the glory of man. Look at the hospital that we built. Look at people being helped. Look at the lives that are being affected. God is nowhere in the picture. Nowhere does he receive glory for having given man a brain that can operate to build a building or create a medicine or reach out to somebody's life and have an ounce of compassion. Listen, the only reason why the residue of any of those elements is in a person who is a sinner is because he has an element of being created in the image of God. Not because on his own he is intrinsically compassionate and caring by himself. And to act as though you are the originator of those qualities brings the opposition of God. God is not for human unity. He's for man being united underneath who he is. And it's the only safe place for man to be united.
You try and unite under anything else, you will have a war on your hands at some point. People will kill each other over that unity. In verse 11, Jesus says, verse 10, he says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. That's quite a request. He says it again. Look in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Please notice the emphasis as we've talked about the last couple of weeks. The emphasis is on believing in me. That is a significant thing about Christianity. Not those who will act like me, but those who will believe in me, who then will begin to act like him. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. This great request of Jesus for unity. This is, this is, this is the most clear presentation of a prayer from the heart of the Savior upon earth. Of something that intensely matters to him. Now, please hear this. This is not Jesus just wanting his kids to get along with each other. This is not Jesus singing the Coca-Cola song. We just like for them, everybody to live in harmony. He's swaying back and forth as he says this. This is strategically critical to the gospel. And as you read the rest of the New Testament and you run the interference of the Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament who are poking their nose into the business of the church and they're saying, don't do that, do this. That's not how you lead, you lead this way. You don't care for people that way, you do it like this. That's not how a marriage is done, you do it this way. This is, that's not holiness, this is holiness. That's impure, that's not how the kingdom is. You read the rest of the New Testament, don't you find that that's what they're doing? Now, have you ever stopped and thought... Those writers are answering this prayer. Make them one, even as we are one. Jesus was in complete agreement with his father. The life he lived, the values he held, the doctrine, the belief system that was in him. The rest of the New Testament is about taking a blurry bunch of people who came from Greek backgrounds and Jewish backgrounds and heathens and people who had a false view of God and worshipped idols. People who were left brain and right brain and people who were religious and irreligious, they were mature and immature, putting them all in one place and saying, everybody, play off the same page of music. Do one thing. Answer the prayer of the Son of God. Make them one. Now, if that's what the rest of the New Testament is about, then it matters what we believe And how we live. Because the rest of the New Testament is about what we believe and how we live. Which was the passionate plea of the Son of God. Keep reading. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the Son of Destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Two things here highlighted that are needed for unity. And it kind of it tracks a little bit with some of the oaths that we've studied that reflect some of these values. One would be separation from the world. Forsake. Become separate. Break your allegiances. Break the ties that you had with the past, with the ideas, with the traditions, with the religious things that you were attached to before. Forsake those things. Father, keep them from the world. They are to be in the world, but they are not to be of the world. The philosophy, the ways of the world are not to find itself at home in us. Secondly, sanctify them in the truth. It's not we're just we're just not called out of the world into some oblivion. We're called out of the world into the truth. The truth for the church, it's the air that we breathe. It's the way we think. It's the mechanisms and methods and motivations for everything we do. And that's what was at the critical heart of Jesus saying, I want you to be one. In order for you to be one and your oneness would demonstrate my glory and reveal the character of God, in order for that to happen, you're going to have to come out of the world, forsake the world, break all those ties to the world and those ideas, and you're going to have to embrace the truth and walk in it. Now, what's this got to do with signing a church covenant? Well, in an interesting way, signing a church covenant declares a breaking of allegiances with man-centered methods and motives. It is, it is the separation dynamic. It is choosing to submit to and believe this rather than that. I am making that statement when I sign this. Now listen, all of the avenues of our life, whether it's conflict resolution, I've put some of these examples in your outline. You can do conflict resolution by man's current ideas or you can do it in a way which glorifies God. Somebody's stabbed you in the back. Somebody's hurt you. What do you do? Now, how many of you know you have a textbook already lodged in your mind somewhere that you have the ability to pull it off the shelf and begin to thumb through it? You've been hurt. What chapter do you read from? Some people read from the mope chapter. I'm going to mope followed by the season of chill, cold chapter. Do you feel how cold I am toward you? Some take up arms, gather spies to find out what's happened, what's going on in their life, plotting, considering, where are they vulnerable? Where can I get even with them? How about a little gossip? Begin to share with others what's been done to me or said about me. These are all techniques. This is all conflict resolution, don't you know? You're having a conflict and you're responding. 
The question is, are you responding with the culture's ideas, man-centered, man-glorifying ways? Are you responding in a way that glorifies God? Have you broken with the ways of the world? Have you said, I will not do it that way? Because there's lots of ideas. There's ideas about marriage today. Marriage is being completely redefined. We've had a divorce crisis in this country for years. Now, now we have a definition crisis on our hands. We don't know what we're going to call marriage. Same-sex marriage. Been around for a while, marriage. Who knows what this thing's even going to look like in five or ten years? Purity. Listen, there's, there's the world's ideas about purity, and then there's God's ideas about purity. You are absorbing the world's ideas, whether you volunteer for it or not. I look around the church sometimes and I think, ladies, what are you thinking in the way you're dressed? You've been watching too many movies. You don't realize the impurity that you are bringing into a setting by what is being revealed by what you have on. Are you dressing for the glory of God? Or are you dressing for the glory of Fifth Avenue? For the glory of that which makes you look a certain way. Do you understand that's all about man's glory? It's all about me looking a certain way because I want people to think of me a certain way. I'm not real interested in how well they're thinking about God. Materialism and money what we spend our time and our energies on, what we devote ourselves to. See, all these ideas are out there. Do we break with the world and embrace the wisdom of God? Or do we stay attached to the world? It declares our submission to the truth. Taking a document like this and saying, do I believe these things? Does this reflect my convictions? Does this reflect the boundaries in which I intend to live my life? Am I living into the truth? Here, is this truth that I want to live that? And I want to live that because I know the promises associated with truth. I know the benefits that it brings to my life. I know the blessing it brings to others. I would not want to live my life by anything else. Now, what's at stake in what we believe and how we live? When you read this passage here, you find two things. Your outline says the glory of God. And actually, it should say the glory of God being revealed. Because the glory of God is not at stake. The glory of God will remain the glory of God. But the glory of God being seen and revealed through the vehicle of the church is at stake. That's a genuine issue. The church decides to disobey God and walk in a manner unworthy of the calling. Then that which God had reserved for a worthy walk is forfeited of his glory being seen through us. Secondly... What's at stake in what we believe and how we live is a compelling revelation to the world. Look at verse 21 and verse 23. In this prayer, Jesus says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. Here's why. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And he says it again in verse 23. I and them. You and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What's, what's at stake here? What is it that Jesus 
wants them to know. He wants the world to know that he is the sent one. He is the Messiah. That was that key dynamic of the Messiah. He is the anointed sent one of God. Sent to do what? Sent to save humanity. Sent to be the doorway into a relationship with God. Our living of our life, the way we live and what we believe, the way we live and what we believe, that demonstrates the unity that the Father and the Son have, demonstrates it through our life as you and I abandon our own ways of doing things, dislodge from the world's methods and the world's ideas and the world's approaches and the world's rewards, and give ourselves completely to the one way of glorifying God. As we do that, the world gets a clear picture that the Father really did send this one and brings them near to see Him and believe in Him. That is the gospel that's at stake through what we believe and the way we live our lives. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in him, believe in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But the next verse tells us that man has rejected God and already stands condemned. The world you and I live in needs a clear picture of the Son of God who was sent by the Father so that they might move from a place of condemnation to a place of salvation. And in this prayer, Jesus highlights that the unity of the church is dependent upon that. Now listen carefully. Jesus does not highlight unity here. He highlights the unity of the church. Jesus does not say that everybody just needs to get along with each other. Jesus says the church needs to show forth the glory of God. Which might mean you and I could, could disagree violently with each other about some things and still figure out how to walk as humble human beings together for the glory of God. Matt, go ahead and come up here. Frequently... So we read the New Testament, you find Paul and the other New Testament writers making a big deal out of how we live, calling us to certain behaviors. You see in your outline there, Philippians 2, verse 14 through 16 says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. What does that cute little phrase mean, holding fast to the word of life? What has everything to do with what we believe and how we live? That's how you hold fast. The manner of our living, the convictions that we hold, do they reflect biblical convictions? Do we solve our problems biblically? Do we live towards each other biblically? Remember, here's, where we, here's the verse that we started this entire series out of way back when we were all children, I think. Okay. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writing to Timothy concerning the church and its manner of living. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. You understand, this is, this is Paul being inspired to write in a way that is fulfilling the very prayer Jesus prayed. Sanctify them in the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. That's not just a cute phrase. The truth gets reflected in how we live. I'm writing these things to you so that you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is very much about how one ought to behave in the household of God. And as you and I submit our lives to truth and agree together that we will live and die for this cause. We sat together. And this would be an interesting thing for us to do. To sit together in the solemnness and the, and the historical holiness, if you will, of those men who gathered with a document and considered putting their names on that. And it would cost them perhaps their lives to commit to believing something. For us to consider, are you, are you willing to die for these things? Now that's an easier question than asking this one. Are you willing to live for them? Sometimes dying for things is easier than living for them, isn't it? The living thing, I've got I to keep doing it. <laughs> the dying thing, it's kind of all over with. We just change our dresses and go on. Are you willing to live for these things? Now, I want this to be a sober consideration. That's why we're not signing this today. So we will come back in the next few weeks and do that. I think I put this in your outline. What am I saying in signing what am I saying in signing? And by the way, I am signing this. And there's been a number of questions from folks, and, and well-intended. I think folks are just trying to understand the process and what we're doing. You know, what about, what if I don't sign? What if I just, you know, I don't know, I just don't like signing things. I just, you know, it feels too legal. I don't know, do I need, do I need a lawyer to read this? I don't know. I just don't feel comfortable signing it. I mean, what, are you going to have like, Part of the church are the signing people and part of the church are the unsigned people. You're going to treat the unsigned, the non-signers different? Um, no. See, because in me signing this, you can read this and you can find out exactly how I plan on treating you. I'm putting my name on here. I'm announcing to you, these are my intentions. The document starts out fully saying, I don't expect that I'll walk them out perfectly. But when I fall down, you're going to find me getting up and aiming in the same direction towards you over and over and over again. Because that's what I'm committed to. I'm willing to die for these principles and these truths. So you will know that about me. Now, if you don't sign that, the only thing that may be left unsaid is, I don't know how you plan on treating me. There won't be second-class citizens. There won't be those who are looked down upon and you're looked at as you walk through the back door and you can't seem to get an appointment with a pastor. Um, 
No. How, do you, how can you know that? Because I'm telling you how I'm going to treat you. I'm committed to these things. Whether I know how you're going to treat me or not, I value the glory of God. And I want it to be seen in my life to my last dying breath. And what I'm saying in signing something like this, one, I'm saying I'm committed to live my life for the glory of God. I think these values reflect what glorifies God. I'm committed to live my life for the glory of God. Secondly, I'm saying I'm committed to do my part so that the world may know him. Now, a real sobering reality is the question for all of us. Are we really committed to those things? Are we really committed above anything else to live for the glory of God? Are we really committed above any other earthly treasure to live in such a way that the world may know him? Now, let me disturb you for a moment. If you answer no to either one of those questions, personally, I don't think you're a Christian. I don't think you can be. I don't think it's possible for somebody who's a Christian, again, we use the term lightly, but for a Christian who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and the presence of God is in you and you're not convinced the greatest calling you could be a part of is for God to receive the glory through your life. That doesn't attract you. You should be very worried right now. I don't think you're a Christian. A passion for others to come into the saving knowledge of Christ and to be convinced that he is the one to whom their life is called in this is life that they would know thee. You're not convinced of that? I don't think you're a Christian. If those two issues don't float around inside of you, it doesn't mean you walk it out perfectly. You probably have a great deal of regret. And the regret in those categories would probably testify how important it really is to you. You've regretted moments where you didn't display the glory of God, where you didn't take advantage of an opportunity for somebody else to have seen God and drawn near to him and be, be saved. Here's what I'd like for us to do. I'd like for you to take these home and review them. Sit with your families. Read through them. Ask each other. Do I really agree with this? Am I really committed to this? Go through each point individually. Look at some of the scriptures that are there that support each one of these commitments and each one of these beliefs. Look through them and consider. Consider putting your name on the line. Now, next, next week, next week we're going to present to all the current members, which, by the way, the church always has members and those who are in the process of becoming members and those who are not members. Next week, we're going to present to all the current members of the church uh, amended articles in the Constitution and bylaws that have needed to have been updated since we've become part of Sovereign Grace to reflect our different form of government, as well as to reflect some of these values that are put into that document. Uh, you may receive that in an email this week, a document for you to review. And in, in about two weeks or three weeks, at least probably at least three weeks, we'll have a, a members meeting after service where you will vote on those changes to amend the articles and the Constitution and bylaws. Um, all this is part of us in an age in which clarity is needed, clarifying what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a part of the body of Christ. We used to have the flimsiest form of church membership here. You just showed up, 
got to know you a little bit. You sounded like a Christian. You dressed like a Christian. You signed a blue card. The blue card actually had a whole bunch of this stuff in it. Just it was real short. It didn't make you analyze it real carefully. It had one little element in it that really gave away to us that nearly no one takes this seriously. It had a line in there that said you had actually read and considered favorably the Constitution and bylaws of the church. And yet in the history that I've been a part of the church, I can only remember like one or two people ever asking for a copy of the Constitution and bylaws. So what it screamed out is we don't take membership seriously. Please take it very seriously. Your life depends on it. If these values don't reflect reflect biblical values, then we need to adjust this document. If they are something we are unwilling to be committed to, then we are the ones needing to be adjusted. So I want to pray for us to consider this and to pray for God to prepare us for a, a holy, historic moment for us individually. For some, it'll just be re-signing what has always been the intention of your heart for many years. For others, it will be a real consideration, perhaps, of breaking with the world and being sanctified in the truth and being serious about that. Let's pray together. Lord, it is, it is a screaming statement of your grace that we're even having this conversation today. But what, what a mystery that someone as selfish as me, as pleasure-seeking, as personally kingdom-building as myself, would ever come to a place where I'd be willing to forsake my glory because I've fallen more in love with your glory. Lord, that is a miracle of grace. And God, the lives that you have given us to, to live now, together as a church, making a declaration and a statement to the heavens as the heavens look on, and behold, the glory of God made manifest in the redeemed. And the statement being made to this world all around us, As the blurry lines of the Savior of the world find clarity in the church, in its beliefs, in its motives, in its methods. Oh, Lord, this is a work of divine grace for which we are grateful. Lord, I pray for us as a family here. Pray for us to consider soberly, where are we? And what we are willing to die for and to give our lives for. But as we look at this document, Lord, would you, would you marry our hearts in a greater way to your glory and to the redemption of this world? May we live lives separated and sanctified in truth that your name might be known through us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Bless you guys. Have a great, awesome week.